I'm WFAE's David Borax, and this is R&D in the QC. Tarek Bakari and Larkin Eggleston, one Republican and one Democrat who bonded as first-term Charlotte City Council members. Somehow, they both got re-elected, and now we're stuck listening to another season of this amateur hour bullshit. In the first 82 episodes, they talked to a governor, a senator, presidential candidates, and even a journalist or two. Their goal again this season, bringing Charlotte listeners behind the scenes of the city council in one of America's fastest-growing cities. I won't be listening, but for some reason, you are... R&D in the QC, episode 102. We recap the DNC, talk RNC in Charlotte, are joined by a BBC correspondent, and get a local business perspective on the COVID crisis and the RNC. Let's do it. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to R&D in the QC episode 102, the convention edition. With me as always, my faithful sidekick. Still not your sidekick. Larkin, what do you think? Where are we right now? Tell the folks. Let's start there. We are on Tryon, right at 5th Street at 204 North. And um, this is one of the restaurants that is, is not currently able to be, uh, well, they are able to be open, but they have realized that it. It does not make financial sense to be open right now. Certainly because, not because of the RNC kind of economic windfall that's dropping on everyone as we speak. Yeah, I mean, a year ago, this would have been one of the restaurants uh, that would have or, or likely was signing contracts with uh, with groups that wanted to rent it out and, um, and would have been expecting a big, big bump this week. But as is the case now, uh, we've got around 400 people here. And as we sit here today at 4 o'clock on Monday... They have just concluded the business portion of the convention at the convention center and at the West. And, um, and the, the president and vice president were here briefly today. They have now left and are headed to Western North Carolina for some, some sort of fundraiser. Uh, I imagine most delegates will probably be departing tomorrow, uh, but have concluded the business. And now most of this will be virtual uh, and just being watched on television starting tonight. So it, it is definitely uh, much like the DNC, which we'll get to later, uh, been a much different experience than I think anybody expected. Uh, we have had protests uh, for the last three nights and, and another one going on today. Uh, not big crowds, but I, I wasn't expecting big crowds since there's not but so many people here to protest about. So we have uh, our friends from uh, across the pond, the BBC, represented today with us. They, um, they uh, found our podcast somehow. I have no idea how. I guess they go real deep in diligence when they look at new cities. Um, but later in this episode, we're going to have David on with us. Uh, reporter who is doing a little piece on the RNC on Charlotte, what's happening here, and will be a little part of that. But we got to speak to him in a meet the press style. I guess the question is, is before they're the, leaving, the question is, will the BBC start airing our our broadcast every week? I think. Well, I mean, I, that's not a question. We know they're going to do that. The real question is, um, is there going to be like like uh, protests into uh, violence tonight? Are they going to be able to get out of town? What 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 is your view of? how tonight's going to be as it relates to groups uh, uptown where we're sitting right now looking uh, looking on to where the RNC should have been. What kind of uh, potential protest all the way to riot do you think could, could be possible? I mean, there haven't been riots the last three nights. There has been some unrest, but the group that's organizing the event uh, today, it's actually an earlier event. I think it starts um, in the next hour or so. 435 o'clock and they have been promoting it as more of a family-friendly event where people can come and voice their displeasure about the RNC about President Trump um, so they their objective has been all along and they've been planning this for a long time uh, this particular group for today's event 
uh, that this not be um, anything that, that would potentially turn uh, unruly. But, you know, only time will tell. The, the last three nights, I think, have largely stayed under control on, on both sides and have been well-managed um, with very little damage and, and only a small handful of arrests. So I don't expect that we'll see anything much different tonight. And, and again, the president and vice president have come and gone. Most of the delegates, um, they're done with their work, and many probably have left at this point. Um, so, you know, I think there's some symbolism to the protest, but there's really no one here necessarily to, to protest at. So for all of the listeners who are, are, haven't been with us for 101 episodes, maybe this is their first time, let's, let's do it. I just thought of this. I didn't tell you beforehand. Well, this, this, can this is how it always wrong. goes well. Um, let's do a challenge. We each have 45 seconds on the clock. And we need to catch everyone up on what's happened in the last two years that has brought us to today, looking out amongst this RNC uh, situation that we're in. Okay? 45 seconds. I'll be the timekeeper. Do you want to go first or second? I'm supposed to explain the whole two-year process. Whole, everything that happened in 45 seconds. you got to bring them up to and speed. And then you're going to do the same thing. I'm going to do the same That's thing. That's redundant. Well, I, I feel like we're going to tell it differently. Okay. I'll start. How about that? I'll go first. <laughs> tell me when you're ready. All right. Go. January of 2018. This is already too long. Go ahead. <laughs> All but one member of city council told Mayor Lyles to pursue the RNC. She did. We got it. Uh, six or so months later, it suddenly became a 6-5 six, five, six, five vote for us to actually host it. Uh, fast forward a year and change of people being upset about that vote later and stickers that were very mean about you, me, Vi, and others. And Donald Trump decided to take it to Jacksonville before he decided that it couldn't be held in Jacksonville. Now it's back here, but only for a day, and it's mostly virtual. And that's kind of what it is. You've got an extra 10 seconds. Yeah. Do you want to run off the clock and do anything there? That uh, was. I knew you would tell it differently than me. All yeah. right, all right. Let, let, so let's tell them the real story now. Okay, I'll put my, my time on the clock. You even got the stickers in there. That was pretty impressive. Okay. Well, it's because it came up in a uh, in an on weekend edition, a national NPR show this weekend. They That's asked great. about the stickers. Congratulations. All right, here we go. Now let me tell the real your, story. Your sticker was uh, more memorable than mine. Great. Awesome. Here we go. All right. About two years ago, came together, whole bunch of Democrats, one or two Republicans, decided to have the RNC in Charlotte two years later. Big, amazing arguments across town. Exhausting. Two years of work after we decided to have it. COVID hits, the world implodes. Then all of a sudden, it's, it's no one will guarantee, can we have the RNC here at all versus can it be full capacity? Um, Governor Cooper and President Trump butt heads. And then ultimately, uh, in my opinion, Governor Cooper does not necessarily come fully transparently in, in good faith to the table. Right Jacksonville, back. Now we're here. Small businesses, over 10,000 of them, totally screwed. Um, and, and time. That's it. Time. Do we do, did we catch them, everybody up? That's I think that. everybody probably already A minute and a half. If you're up. listening to this show, you probably already, you already do. Well, well, who knows? With the whole BBC thing, this could be a big deal for us, Larkin. I mean, we might have billions. John Oliver could be listening. John. Oh, that's true. No, wait. He's not allowed to. Didn't they, like, ban him from England? Um, we're, we're looking to our BBC correspondent, <laughs> and we're not getting an answer. No comment. Don't like, th- I don't think John Oliver is banned from BBC. Crikey. Nope, I also don't think that he says crikey. <laughs> I think you're confusing. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of R&D in the QC. All right. Where Tark confuses his accent. So now we're back to, to present day. 
That's that brought us to speed here. We're here, we're here at present day. So for everyone, I think the two things they probably want to hear from us as we cap off the RNC are one, what does this really mean for Charlotte? Now that it's here, what's happening? What does it actually mean behind the scenes? And two, how does this play into the broader presidential election? Um, but but then I'd like to cap it off with you. You're a delegate for the DNC. Um, I heard I took a lot of naps, obviously, as did most people watching that last week. So um, it was past my bedtime. It was. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, late. So I'd be interested also in your your recap of the DNC as well as how that plays in. So let's just start with what's going on now in Charlotte. Yeah, I mean, we only have about 400 people in Charlotte and we've only got them here for probably 48 hours on average. So the impact is obviously not there. From- Why are you rounding up? You've been rounding up to 400 well, this whole time. Well, it's 336 delegates, but it takes people to run the convention. I've been rounding delegates. down to 300. Let's be that's, fair. That's because you're less worried about being factually accurate. Um, there were 336 delegates, but there's obviously people that run the convention. There's people with the RNC um, that are coming in town to help put on what what little event there is and or was. And so, you know, 400 people were not going to have an economic impact of any noticeable amount. But I think, you know, just... And having someone from the BBC here maybe highlights what impact there still could be, which is that the eyes of the world are still on Charlotte to some degree. You know, with the roll call this morning, with the convention still kind of formally being hosted in Charlotte, and with having, whether they're here on the ground like the BBC is, or virtually having people covering events from Charlotte, I think still have a bit of, um, of a profile boost, as it were. You said, what impact does this have on the election? And, and frankly, not much. I mean, conventions historically have not had a big impact um, either for or against either candidate. I don't think that either will have an impact. Um, we'll get to the DNC, and I'll say what I think people's takeaways from that will be. Obviously, to be determined on the Republican convention, this morning's proceedings were more business-oriented and kind of the formality of renominating um, Trump and Pence, and they were on C-SPAN. I don't think a lot of people were watching it things people will be watching will start tonight and we'll see what the tone is of that and how it but goes. But see, that's my whole point. Like the things that start tonight are now going to be either pre-recorded in other states yeah, or live from other states. So like while we're like, oh yeah, there's been a bunch of coverage, like the coverage has been on like, you know, C-SPAN Ocho and <laughs> we're not getting a whole lot of uh, visibility. Right, right between dodgeball and, yeah, uh, exactly. and uh, cornhole tournament. Exactly. So esports actually. So I, I mean... What real, if, if the last quantifiable measure of impact that we could possibly argue the RNC would have on Charlotte is the fact that maybe for 24 to 36 hours, the eyes of the world are on us. Well, are our eyes on the things that are on some random channel? Are the eyes of the world actually on us? And is there any inherent benefit to that? Not nearly to the extent there would have been. And but all right, so take that away. But is there any benefit? And again, I don't know what, um, I don't know exactly how the, RNC handled this, but as a delegate for the DNC, there was still a relevance from Milwaukee and for Wisconsin, which were obviously the host cities. I'm sorry, you say irrelevance? There was a relevance. Irrelevance. Well, probably some of both. Okay. But, you know, with the delegate packets we received, we got um, items from Milwaukee. We got things that represented Milwaukee um, and were, you know, I think meant to entice us to want to visit. Now, obviously, my sister's in Milwaukee. I've been there several times but i think for people, great bloody mary's yes they insane come with a, bloody they come with a beer oh, bloody mary's so in wisconsin come with high a beer. life come with a high um life. the champagne of beers mm. so i think there were things in there for the people who would have undoubtedly been disappointed to not be able to make that trip 
that would have said, hey, you should come and visit us sometime. Here's a lot of the great stuff that you missed out on in Milwaukee. I don't know if the Republicans did the same. I hope they did. I hope they sent people things um, that represented Charlotte, that told a little bit of Charlotte's story and would have enticed people later to come back and make that trip to Charlotte that maybe they didn't get to for this convention. So, again, you know, it's not nearly the impact it would have had. It is still an interesting footnote in history. Uh, We are still, I guess, technically one of the only cities in the country that's hosted both major party conventions. There's got to be an asterisk next to that. There's definitely an asterisk next to it. But, um, (laughs) you know, it is what it is. I do think that the DNC being entirely virtual, the Republican convention being almost entirely virtual, was the right decision for from a health perspective. Um, there's really no way around it. Really? It was a, a sloppy way to get really? there. Do you really feel that way? I do. Do you really feel like there wasn't a middle ground scenario where it wasn't 50,000 people or 300 people? Or, okay, sorry, 400 people. Do you think there was a scenario where there were 5,000 people and those 5,000 people actually could come out to these restaurants like the one we're sitting in? I mean, do you think Maybe, that, like, but I think that if you're going to do that, you have to then have a plan. And currently, uh, UNC Charlotte just announced their first home football game is going to be without fans. Um, our, our professional soccer team, the Charlotte Independence, has been playing without fans. I think you can't just say, well, for this convention, we're going to allow this big group of people to not only gather, but to, to come in here, like fly in and travel um, to our city, but we're not going to let anybody else do it. So I think there's got to be consistency and. If we're canceling football in the South, uh, you know that there's still something serious going on. So I think we, we have to be equitable in, in enforcing that for any event that would want to take equitable place. Equitable in enforcing, equitable in our decisions. See, that's the I think that's the, the, the piece that the other side of the aisle looks at. And they say, well, where is the consistency or equity in a restaurant being able to open that, you know, or, or, or brewery that serves pretzels? I knew it. I saw it coming from a mile away, your stupid pretzel analogy. The pre- but it's true. If you, if you serve pretzels and you're a brewery, you're allowed to be open here in Charlotte. But There's if you don't serve pretzels. you allowed to be open right now. Right. And it, and it is, there has been a lot of confusion. Um, and I don't ALE's agree. been getting to the bottom of that, I hear, though. So. No one's getting to the bottom of it. Um, but I, again, I think that. But that's, you got to admit, while I might have to admit some of the equity of what you've just said on one side, you have to agree that the consistency on the other side is not something that has been evident to a lot of logical people across this state and city. The clarity around the the food and beverage industry piece has been, has been lacking undoubtedly, but I think that you could not have a large event, anything like a political convention in our current state. And I think that, you know, for, for Milwaukee, it was the right decision. For Charlotte, it was the right decision. And it's a shame that we don't have the economic impact, and Milwaukee doesn't either. But I think, too, the health risk was just too great, and, and we ended up where we are. So, um, mm. you know, I think things largely have gone smoothly with, with what little events have been held in Charlotte. It's basically over today. Um, and so, you know. I always wonder what the NBA bubble would be like with nothing to watch, like if they didn't play basketball. If, if they were all old and unathletic. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, now stop, you know. no. Um, so the DNC last week, yeah, tell it, us it was that. strange. I mean, I, I went to the 2016 convention as a delegate for Secretary Clinton. I was in person at in Philadelphia for it. Uh, it is a big party. There's, you know, it, it's all pomp and circumstance. The conventions don't actually decide who your nominee is. They haven't for years. That's decided well in advance. But it is cool. I mean, it's, it's cool because you get to meet a lot of people. You get to go to a lot of events hang out with old friends, meet new friends. 
Um, and, and there's just a lot of really interesting and unique opportunities that come along with a convention like that, even if most of it is a formality. It, it was, you know, it's tough. And, and I, don't, I don't blame anybody for this because it's hard, as if we've tried to do with council meetings and whatever. You just can't do the it, – it, nothing feels the same when it's virtual. And so, you know, we were doing North Carolina delegation calls – as I was a delegate for Vice President Biden, we were doing delegation calls. And we had really interesting national speakers on there, and it was just the delegation from North Carolina, which is only, um, you know, 100 people or something. And and yet it still didn't really have, like, it, it just didn't feel right because it kind of still feels like, you know, even if you've got Cory Booker on there, you've got whoever on there, it still just feels like you're watching them on TV, even if it's a small group. So yeah. I, it's tough. And then, you know, I was sitting on my couch watching it on, not just watching them on TV, but like watching them on TV and they're doing like a state of the union style, read a speech or something very well, kind of monotony and there, there's no, there's no reaction. Well, you're talking about the, the convention part. I'm saying we actually did have some. Oh, so they like, were like, gatherings like off. free, freestyle talking back and forth. Yeah. And it was just for the North Carolina delegation. It was not televised or anything like that. Mm. Um, and again, I'll be interested to see what, what the RNC's angle or, or take is on how to approach a virtual convention. I mean, I think the DNC did some things well. I think the roll call they did where they highlighted each of the states and territories was an interesting way to shine a light on, on the uniqueness that uh, different parts of our country have and, and the uniqueness of many of the people in the Democratic Party. I think we are, we take pride in being the Big Tent Party. I think we displayed that in a lot of ways, but it, you just can't have the same impact. Now, what both um, the Democrats and the Republicans might be breathing a sigh of relief about is you also can't have the inter-party conflict of you know people shouting at the stage during a convention speech. Um, I, I imagine maybe both of our parties would have had some of that this year. And so maybe you're glad you don't have the hecklers in the crowd, but you also don't have the people cheering in the crowd for your candidate. You don't have that sort of energy that you can have in a in a convention hall with 20,000 people. So I said this to you earlier and I'll just repeat it once again for, for our audience. I just, I think the one thing to watch for in this election going forward on the Democrat side is I don't know how with this massive tent, big top, if you will, that you've constructed, how Biden can, can talk about anything with specificity other than a referendum and hate Trump. Um, and he's a bad guy. I don't know how, how they can talk about anything and both not alienate, you know, the the Kasich on one side and Bernie on the other. Just it don't is, know how you do that. It's harder. It's harder to... It's not harder. It's impossible. Well, it, I mean, it's it's impossible to please everybody, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. You can it, talk about Trump's handling of, of COVID if you want versus what you Democrat, do. Though, what else can you talk about? Because you can't we talk do about have a cops. broader spectrum of perspectives, a, a broader spectrum of... Yeah, I mean, I guess broader spectrum of perspective. That sounds. That's, it's kind. I of know what you sounding. mean. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, a, a wider array of, of viewpoints, and it is harder to keep everybody happy at the same same time. I think that's valuable that we have that diversity. It's going to be tough, and I think that that for a lot of voters, it will be a referendum on Trump. Um, but I do think Democrats have to also talk about the economy and how Trump's handling of this crisis, frankly, has hurt the economy. Was he, was he at the helm while we continued to have growth that, that started during President Obama? Did it incre increase and he was at the helm there? 
Yeah, and he should be able to take some credit for that, but he also has to take some of the blame for the fact that his poor handling of this crisis early on led to much deeper economic impacts than it would have if he'd have been if he'd have taken it more seriously sooner. And so I think if he wants to take credit for how good the economy was doing, he has to take some of the blame for how poorly it's doing. That's and if we're not talking not, about the economy. I won't I won't engage in that in that debate. We well, don't need to. Well, we can agree that the Democrats need to talk about the economy uh, in addition to the other things. I just would about. love to hear to hear Biden talk about a couple specific policies. I mean, he, I don't think, who knows, we'll see. I don't think he can make it from now till November 3rd and not do that. I have not done this, so I'm doing it on the fly, which is dangerous. Oh. But I'm going to see. I like the sound of it. But I'm going to see on their websites uh, the breadth of. Okay. All right. Now let me stop you right have. there. Okay. Because the, breadth, the depth and breadth of your positions on your website. How many people do you think are going to his website in the big tent that they are counting on voting? Like, what percentage would you say? Well, I'm just saying, if, if, if you're saying he's not taking any stances or saying what he would do, I mean, he's got stuff on here, leadership in times of COVID-19, equality for people with disabilities, education beyond high school, ending the opioid epidemic, which I think we should have talked about more during the DNC than we did, securing our values as a nation of immigrants, providing health care for Americans, talking about gun violence, LGBTQ equality. I... I, I, there's no lack of platform. Um, and I I'm not saying the, the high-level sentences of like, yes, and this is what we stand for and we believe. And a lot of I doubt that. I highly I didn't, doubt I didn't that. Figure you I highly doubt that. <laughs> I bet you it's a click. It's like a 404 not found error. I'm pretty sure of it. All right, so you're saying there is a platform. Are there any lists of Democrat principles there? Promises made, promises kept. Whose website do you think this is? <laughs> Kasich? Is that Kasich? Well, anyway, all right. So what's the punchline of all this? And, and the second point on Trump's platform is basically disparaging immigrants. So, this, yeah, so this, we know where they stand. This on is stuff. why we don't talk about national politics on this on this podcast. Yes, it does. It does devolve quickly. This would not be a good national political podcast. So uh, anything local going on? Uh, Feels like it, it's all encompassing know. national yeah. right now. There's a the lot, but we'll get back to it. About. Um We've got two great guests coming up to finish off the podcast. Like we mentioned before, we're going to talk to um, the, the, David Grossman the, from the, BBC. the BBC, you know, a group that clearly follows our podcast. They've been following it for years. I'm pretty sure they're looking at acquiring it someday as, as really a part of their major news platform. We'll talk to David Grossman in that It is period. for sale for the record. It's not for sale. It is not. See, of course, the Democrat would say it's for Seven sale. Seven figures, everything has a price. Nothing has a price. This is priceless. <laughs> Anyway, and then we'll Prices also, uh, based on our, our, our visiting and being able to do the podcast here live in the heartbeat of the Republican National Convention, um, we're also going to have our good friend, the owner of 204 North, Anthony Keery on, just to quickly get an update from him on kind of what, his, what he was anticipating and planning for in this RNC time and also what, what he's doing. We've now. also identified already in the last 10 or 15 minutes, one of the problems with doing the podcast in a large uh, picture frame window on Tryon. This is great. Is someone walked up and just stared at us for like five minutes. This is what happens. I had to pretend not to see them. This is what happens to uh, Mike Collins and them like on a daily basis. That's true. You're basically just like a, a kind of a... a, a Slightly a, less busy street over there, but yes. That's true. All right. We will be right back.
All right, we're back, episode 102, and we have a Meet the Press style edition again. This time, David Grossman is with us with the BBC. We just had a, a great little segment with him there in town. Um, and David, first of all, welcome to Charlotte. Um, we're sitting here in 204 North, which is, uh, we chose this place because it's obviously a, one of our great restaurants, also one of our restaurants that was anticipating um, some business for an RNC. And as we're looking out the window, you can see there's not really much business going on. Um, but welcome to the show and Thank your you. first gut reactions of being here in a hybrid RNC environment. And the pride you feel being the first international media guest we've mm. had well, on that. the podcast. I'm looking forward to getting the badge. You promised me a badge. There's no badge, but there's you no can badge. add it to your LinkedIn page. <laughs> oh, okay. It's a virtual badge, like this virtual convention. Yes, exactly. Oh, look, it's great to be in Charlotte. It's a beautiful city, and it's really exciting to be at the RNC, but I can't help thinking I'm a little bit disappointed that there's, well, virtually nobody here. Um, pun, pun very much intended. Virtually. Virtually nobody here. And, and we went down to, uh, we saw a, a tiny bit of the motorcade of the president arriving, and that was really exciting. But then there weren't really any of the razzmatazz we were expecting. I was looking forward to getting my credentials and getting into the hall. Can't do that. Um, there's like 330 people in there, is that 336 it? delegates and then some staff. And then some staff, but unfortunately I wasn't on the list, so I wasn't coming in. Um, so, Charlotte, beautiful, little disappointed. I have have you covered a convention before? I did 08 um, in Denver, okay. in Obama, and that, I mean, that was amazing. A party. That was extraordinary. And I did the whole, uh, I didn't go to the RNC that year, but I did most of the election that year from Iowa to the conventions and then the election night and we ended up in Chicago on election night. And that was it. That was an extraordinary time. And one of the reasons I wanted to be back out here again is to recreate that, but it's been completely different. So as somebody who has covered multiple conventions, multiple presidential elections, you live in the DC area, but you work for an international news organization and probably have more of a global perspective uh, than some of your counterparts in the media. What do you think the feelings are overseas right now, particularly in uh, in Western Europe, uh, around this presidential election, what are they thinking when they look at us and they look at these conventions? First of all, did they even, would, would the average person in London know where Milwaukee or Charlotte were before this? And, and if so, are they watching these conventions the way that we are as Americans? Are they watching this election uh, with maybe more attention than we watch international elections as a whole? Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. I mean, the election in the United States is the single biggest international non-COVID story and it's the biggest for our audience. I work on a show called Newsnight, very internationally minded program and we're very, our, our audience is very interested in this. I have to say the detail of where things are and where places are in America I think passes a lot of people by. I had more than one conversation about this week and the RNC with people I work with, not necessarily on my program but around and about the um, the organization who, and after a, a short amount of time talking to them, it was clear they'd confused Charlotte with Charlottesville. Oh. Mm. We get that in Charleston sometimes. Charleston yeah. as well. And, and, and it that, makes us that's, very insecure. That's yes. not, to, that's not to, um, to, to, to denigrate their international knowledge, but there is only so much international knowledge you can have. Having said that, there is a tremendous amount of interest in this election because there's a tremendous amount of interest in, in Donald Trump. There's a tremendous amount of interest in his connection with Europe and the relationship with Europe. There's a tremendous amount of interest in what sort of trade deal Britain might have at the end of the Brexit process. Because for a lot of people, if Donald Trump is, is still in power, 
and we have a we need a trade deal he might be more likely to get the sort of trade deal that Boris Johnson would want having said that I'll be honest with you there's a tremendous amount of affection for America but not for Donald Trump in the United Kingdom how would you where's the overlap between those that supported the Brexit vote and those who might be fans of Donald Trump winning I don't I, I look to be honest, I'm not sure there are a huge number of Donald Trump fans in the UK. I think there are there are lots of people who are minded towards the conservative side of it. But Donald Trump is a, a character that I'm not sure necessarily plays particularly well in the UK. He's a bit brasher than our politicians are. He's a bit more in your face than uh, people in the UK tend to like. So I'm not sure there's a tremendous... Here's, a, here's, a, here's a, um, a nugget. Right up until... Uh, we, we had an election in, in, in December of, of, of last year, um, December the 12th. And just before then, at the end of November, there was a NATO conference in London. I don't know if you remember. Mm -hmm. and, and Donald Trump obviously came to the NATO conference in London. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister trying to get re-elected, trying to get a majority, could have made Donald Trump's arrival a centrepiece. You know, here I am receiving world leaders. He snuck him in the back door. You know, huh. he, he did not want to be seen with um, Donald Trump. From my perspective, on our side, it seemed like he was centerpieced in that. And maybe that was the difference no, in how, he, he in how they He didn't want to be photographed it. with him. He didn't want to be... And that, you'd think, that's extraordinary. You know, here he is, the, the, the leader of the free world, coming to your town, in any other occasion, you know, when Obama visited, when George W. Bush visited, um, he would have been heralded, you know, you'd have an arm around him all the time because he would be um, an electoral asset. But Donald Trump was not that. He was not seen to be that in, in the UK. And I think th there are a lot of people who have an affection for America, have an affection for a sort of conservative political viewpoint, but don't have an affection for Donald Trump. How do they feel? What is the sentiment in the same vein of people, let's say, just across the UK in general for Biden? Well, in as much as people know who he is, I think there's a recollection of him as a uh, somebody beside uh, Barack Obama, um, and who served as a, a vice president uh, for, for, for eight years, really without coming to too much attention outside America. I don't think people really thought what he'd done during that time particularly. I think people, as far as people know him, they see him as a sort of a, a respectable and, 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 and um, acceptable politician. But I, I do think there is some puzzlement about how in a country of 330 million people, you've got two gentlemen in their mid to late 70s, and that's the choice. You know, he does seem to come across as someone who, you know, perhaps hasn't got... Uh, he, he isn't in his first flush of youth, is he? So, yeah. Well, and for, for all of the youth movement that we saw in um, not only the Democratic Party, but to some extent the Republican Party in some congressional elections the last few cycles, uh, that has not yet taken hold in our presidential elections, obviously. So. Uh, and nor in, indeed in the people around. You know, in the, you've got the Na Nancy Pelosi, you've got... Uh, Mitch McConnell, you've got 
Chuck Schumer, you, 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 all these people. I mean, these are young, spry people. You know what I mean? That, I bet you they play soccer on the weekends with each other, a lot of stuff. Well, you, you say, I mean, as somebody who's in my 50s, I feel very youthful in America. 50s. Yeah, I think... Um, Have you made your arrangements yet of everything uh, to, to wrap up? 50s. You're still 30 years from becoming a prime minister. <laughs> yeah, well, somebody said when we were in Iowa with Pete Buttigieg and, and, and chasing around that, they said... Which is an extraordinary um, statistic that he was three when Joe Biden made his first run at the presidency. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? And probably around the time Donald Trump filed his first bankruptcy. Yeah, well, that, 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 that's what, one of the things I'm really interested in. It's probably not for your podcast. Is um, what, what's happening in New York about his um, business dealings and the? Have you seen the? Yeah, it turns out maybe not as great a businessman as he claims to be. Well. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, will will will, years. will will he feel the the, the sort of arrest before before November the third? None of this matters. Look, it's, they, it's, they, be, they, it's become clear yeah. that none of this has all been happening. Whether it's none of it matters and it doesn't stick, or none of it's real. The whole point is we've we've been through four years of this, yeah. of all of this. And I guess the final question for you is, um, what is your take on? Um, you know, you guys in, in, in one of your um, one of your folks over there uh, from the BBC reached out to us had somehow found out about our podcast. I have no idea how that happened, <laughs> um, but um, obviously something connected there. What what is your take on two local politicians, a Republican and a Democrat, trying amidst this crazy world, even though we disagree vehemently many times on certain topics? to try to figure out how to bridge that. What's your take there, and what made you guys interested in this podcast in general? Well, we were interested in finding people who could talk to us about what politics in Charlotte and, and talk to us from a sort of non-retreating behind the, the, the fences and the barricades sort of way. You know, admit that, you know, nobody has all the answers. And that, one of the things I find attractive about politics, it, it, I really don't like the kind of everyone bashing each other over a head and, and, and presuming that the only good exists on their side, you know, whichever side they choose, and the other side is demonized and evil. So what, I think what you guys are doing here is, is wonderful, you know, that you, you, you talk to each other like you're, you know, mainly civilized human beings, I presume. I try my best, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you mainly might be a stretch. And you don't get, you don't seem to get into yeah. too many fist fights. Well, you, you can do that at, better at a local level, I think, than uh, the federal politics. It seems like those relationships and, and rapport seem to fray. But every time we start veering into, like at this time of year, it's hard not to talk national politics, especially with the conventions. But... Every time we veer in there, we find it gets a little more challenging for us to have the kind of conversations that we can have on a local level when we're talking about affordable housing or transportation or jobs or, you know, whatever. So one of the great things about Joe Biden, I suppose, is that he was able to make these connections across the aisle. He did because he came from a small state. Uh, comes from a small state. He had to make alliances and not necessarily with the usual suspects. So he had great chums like John McCain, who was a big friend of his and they they but one of the failures i suppose of the american system was that they had to then pretend that they didn't get on which was a bit disappointing so you guys we understand that. Do you, we, we do occasionally you, pretend a little a little <laughs> bit uh, depending on the situation but you know well we're glad that you came to charlotte we hope you enjoyed your visit thank you very we much for having me soon um when things can be a little more normal and we can show you around maybe we'll have the next rnc when, when will that be 2024 
Maybe we'll do when that. When Trump tries to run for a third term, <laughs> if he wins this one. I, I was a bit disappointed that the, the way you got out of buying me a drink in this restaurant is to pretend it's all shut. Well, if you hang out until we finish the show, we'll take you somewhere and buy you a drink. Yeah, because our dear friend Anthony, who runs this beautiful restaurant, is not allowed to do that right now. Okay. I'll, I'll let you guys off. All right. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, folks, we're back for the final segment of episode 102 of R&D and the QC. And now, the one, the, the only, Anthony Carey, owner of so many things in town, but one particularly, 204 North, where we are sitting on display in front of, uh, in front of the people on Trade Street or Tryon, or what street is that, Larkin? This would be Tryon. Tryon. It's not my district, man. Okay? Um... Uh, Anthony, welcome. Hello, hello. And that accent, tell us about that accent. We were born in Mauritius. We? Or I, I guess the royal, the royal, <laughs> we, we, had, we had the, we had the, we had the, we had the, uh, the boys from the BBC. We identified so we, people. Yes. So we had to, uh, we had to be all politically correct. Yes. Uh, I was born in Mauritius, grew up in South Africa, and I've been fortunate to call North Carolina home for 20 years now. Well, you've That's been a here. North Carolina That's a North Carolina accent. We, 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 you have you have been here for a while. You've also uh, made an impact on the city because our city really the the fabric and the culture of our city is in a large part defined by our small businesses. So, Larkin, um, you and I wanted to have a small business owner as well as a small business venue as we're sitting here Monday late afternoon of what the RNC ultimately became. Um, what's the question? What do we want to ask Anthony? Yeah, I mean, I'm interested on your perspective. I'm sure you had folks reaching out to you, particularly given your your central proximity here in Uptown, uh, as the RNC was being planned pre-COVID. Interested on your perspective of that, 204 North, not open for business right now, nor is your other Uptown establishment. You've got some in other neighborhoods around the the city and the county that are open. Interested in your perspective on not only RNC, but really the, the COVID crisis as a whole, and the impacts you're seeing as a small business owner and what, frankly, the city could be doing, we're, we're trying to help, but what else can we be doing? I think you, as we all know, the, the COVID crisis has been a challenge. There's no rule book or playbook or, or script to go by. Um, I think a small business as well, you kind of, you know, you get your business plan together, you, you identify an, an opportunity or somewhere you think you could do something right, and then you, you put it together and you make it happen. So working that, that diligently and you know, growing the company and hiring more people and promoting more people from within and watching more people make money or supporting their own families, and that, that's something that I think small businesses enjoy doing besides just making money. I think it's you know, supporting the community, supporting people here. We don't, like you said, we're not investing money in states far away. You know, everything's within miles of here, not hundreds or you know, thousands of miles. So. The COVID crisis was hard having to lay off hundreds of people in middle of March, you know, people that you've relied on for years. It was probably the hardest email to send, like, because you think, well, it's, we did nothing wrong. We talked to, I talked to dozens of other business owners that kind of felt that, well, you know, I dropped the ball. I let these people down. There's nothing we could have done as small business owners to do it. We are so far down the line of, by the time things get to us, we're, you know, we place all the 30 stop story. So then you, you obviously things get rough and the PPP helped but it burns out quick, especially when we're 20 some thousand dollars a year just in property tax in this building. It's two grand a month. Mm. That bill's already been out again for next year. 
but when you've been closed for many, many months. So you see things like that. Obviously, the bars are even more challenging because the PPP was done on payroll. Insurance, liquor liability insurance, the, 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 the numbers are huge. We're, if I had to guess, over half a million dollars in hard money to keep the company where it at least will be there to employ you know, the staff back, which hopefully that's sooner than later. Unfortunately, there's a lot of other companies or small businesses that won't make it, and that's you really feel bad for them because they've put it on the line. They're just like us. They're humans that love Charlotte. We know a lot of them. We've hung out in their places or, you know, had a drink at the bar or gone to their restaurants. or, And that's, I think, how do we fix that long term? How does the city come back from that so that we don't just end up with this thing looking like we might as well put neon lights out front of all the places and, you know, you look like you're in an airport because it's just going to be chain, chain, chain. Bunch chain, of Applebee's. Yep. So before we move on to the, the final question, which is, you know, what, what, what can we do moving forward? Um, just comment briefly on the RNC. You talked about some hard numbers as it relates to what you've been going through and trying to do. What was it like to watch the RNC story unfold these last couple months? And now we're, we're in, the, in the heart of the RNC, which was really only about 36 hours long, uh, and no businesses are really getting any impacts. Um, what, you know, what, what has that been like? What, what were you looking at and hoping to get out of it? And then ultimately, what did you get? I think if we can go back a year or two, when, when city council wanted it here, I think it was really cool that, you know, we were an inclusive city. We've always preached inclusivity. We want to do that. We want to do that. City council all jumped on board to do it as an inclusive city council. The Democrats championed it as their great win for the city. A few months later, all of a sudden it wasn't as cool anymore. Obviously, we had those meetings and stuff like that when we went and I, and I got into Fort City Council. I said, hey, this isn't about a bowling tournament or a car show or a Democrat, a Republican, whatever. It's about the people in Charlotte needing the boost. Who would have thought that two years later, the coronavirus would hit, which would decimate the service industry, not mm. just the restaurants, but the bars, but the... Uber drivers, cab drivers, the cleaning company, the delivery drivers. Hotels. Yeah, hotels. Mm. I mean, every single thing that touches it. Employees at the airports, they all got demolished by it. So the RNC was still the silver lining to a horrendous 2020 that, you know, we could still save small business. And a lot of places were really relying on that. And the minute that it went away, I mean, obviously it was devastating for us, but a lot of the places announcing they were closing, you know, was was very hard to see because that's part of the, the city and part of the fabric that's, that's never coming back. For us, it was a massive financial implication. We lost hundreds of thousands of dollars this week, which it also is, we would have been paying, you know, massive tax on that too. So it's a knock-on effect all around. We wouldn't, you know, we didn't buy liquor, we didn't buy beer, we didn't buy food. We, we work with 12 to 14 different farms usually. That's local money here. That's not going out of state. That's not going out of the city. That's all staying right here. So mm. that's a challenge. The staff, you know, not being able to keep a, Head, of the, head above waters has definitely been tough too. You, you know, you can't help hundreds of them at a time. We wish you could. I think the city's done some some really good things with the grants. Um, some of the stuff, I think, some of the city councillors have have gotten the way of instead of you know helping the people. You can't create a task force to think about something to discuss something to create a task force on to then try and find someone to give someone money. By the time you do that. You know, got to give the money back. Yeah, <laughs> you've run out of there's, time. There's never been a better definition or a, a better example of letting perfect be the enemy of good. Um, 
and I've said repeatedly, you know, there's been criticism of our staff that, well, this could have been done better, or, you know, whatever. Yeah, maybe it could have, but but there was some need for expediency because you guys were were just hemorrhaging money, um, and and we've already seen you know well over a dozen local restaurants close. You can't you can't wait months to make sure you've you've gotten it. You come up with the perfect program, or the businesses you're trying to help will already be gone by the time you implement it. So, you know, I think we didn't get everything, and and frankly. And I've said this too, while I think things at every level of government, ours included, could have, have likely been done better, that's really easy to say now. And I think there has to be some patience at any level of government that no one was gonna have the exact right answers to questions they never imagined they were gonna have to answer um, or, or challenges they were ever gonna face. So, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating to see some of that work second guessed, I get, I suppose, and, and knowing how hard our staff has been working to try to help small businesses, and we know we haven't gotten it all right, but we sure as hell tried, and we've tried to do it quickly. What what can we do now? I mean, we've got these grants out there. We've just uh, approved some money for, uh, specifically around the, the hospitality, restaurant, hotel industry. But what is it that, whether it's, a, if, you know, we've got state legislators that listen to this show, what can Raleigh do? What can Charlotte do? What can Mecklenburg County do? right now that would make a difference. We don't have tons of money left, um, especially in our own budgets, we have CARES Act dollars, but what are the things right now that you, as you try to figure out how do you survive six more months of slow to no business that are gonna be the difference between you making it or, or closing up shop? So the the bars, as in private clubs, although probably the, and the hotels are the biggest ones getting hammered, um, the restaurants had bigger payrolls, so they could therefore get bigger PPP money. The hotels didn't have as big a payroll, but their costs are high because that's a massive building. Um, big taxes, big overhead, stuff like that. But because it was based on payroll, the bars haven't been able to open in five and a half months. The 11th of September will be six months they've been closed. Um, a bar has a, you know, a few bounces and a few bartenders, but your rent, your liquor liability, those are huge expenses in proportion to the the labor costs. So the labor model, you can't use that for the PPP money, which isn't, I mean, you, there's nothing perfect. There is no, you know, like we said earlier, there's no playbook. And I think the PPP is, has saved hundreds of thousands or millions of businesses, and it's fantastic. But the point is, if you're going to have one particular subset of a, of a sub-industry that's impacted almost more than anyone else, and your relief doesn't really directly apply to them, that's a problem. Correct. I mean, if you're going to if you're going to pick your winners and losers and say a restaurant bar can open and a brewery can open even though they serve no food at a brewery but you don't even give a bar the chance to prove it can or cannot do it yeah well there's got to be there's got to be better and this probably i've come from a federal level but there's got to be some way that the federal government is more effectively working with banks to allow the banks to be able to absorb some of the the non-payment from the landowners who can then absorb some of the non-payment rent-wise from the business owners, and there's gotta be rent relief, but it has to come from the top, and it has to make sure it makes its way all the bottom, because if, you know, I, while people say, well, they should forgive rent, the landlord's got a mortgage to pay, and the, you know, the bank has gotta receive that mortgage, so there's gotta be some sort of relief that comes all the way down through that chain to get to rent relief for you, as a restaurant owner, um, who I don't think you own this building, um, so, you know, 
that could be the more equitable way to help all small businesses because the bar benefits from that the same way that the hotel does or that the restaurant does or that anybody does. Um, and, and that's obviously not a solution we can can craft here at a local level, but uh, hopefully one that they'll find a solution to at the federal level. Yeah, I mean, I think the a couple of those things have just come through that it, does, it doesn't help the ones that are hurting the most. You know, it, well, if you've managed to retain 90% of your employees and are doing 80% of your sales, I can tell you they're still doing it okay. The guy that hasn't been able to open in almost six months, that's the tough part. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of those. In, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of small businesses that are maxing their credit cards and they're taking loans out. No one should have to take a loan out to keep their business in business that was making money. You know, There might the, be a big credit card bubble coming soon, too. Yeah. So to, to put a bow on it, to all the folks that are listening, what can, I mean, you know, early on, everybody was saying, buy gift cards to your favorite restaurants. Um, what are the ways that, obviously, you've got restaurants that are open, one in Matthews, one in Noda, and, and people can, even if they're not comfortable necessarily dining in, they can get takeout from there. But what are the ways that the average listener who might or might not be comfortable coming and sitting down in one of your restaurants, what can they do right now that will help you and those businesses hang on? I think, I think it's just shopping local, spending local, not even just the, the restaurants. I think it's the, the mom and pop, you know, boutique that's selling stuff. I mean, everyone in the small business is hurting in, in the city. And if we want to be an inclusive city, like we always claim we are, let's help all of us, not just, you know, obviously the bars are the worst off and the restaurants are hurting, but there's dozens of other cleaning companies. You name, you name the, the different types of, of characters that could be anywhere from the little ice cream shops, the gelato shops. I mean, probably the boat rentals are probably the only guys that are killing it because everyone's yeah. had a summer off. You know? mm. the, boat, the boat guys are having a great summer. Yeah, makes I mean, sense. Every, every bakery, everything like that, all, this, all the small guys in town are hurting. I think that's a good call to action. Larkin, I have one last question for you to end the episode, but to also hopefully end any episode discussion we ever have going forward on conventions again. Maybe this could be the last time we ever talk about it. Seems pleasant. And I've heard you answer variations of this question differently, so I'm going to phrase it very specifically. If you had a time machine, Okay. You had a time machine. You've heard me not answer this question in multiple ways. I have. I have. And you know what? I'll answer it. I'll I'll answer it first, and you can answer it second. If I had a time machine, and I could go back two years ago, knowing exactly what I know now and how this was all going to play out, would I? I don't have to explain it to anybody. Two two years ago? Whenever it started. Yeah, two and a half, I guess. Because to me... If, if I had a time machine and could go back two and a half years. Back when none of us raised our hand that it was a problem except, except for one lot. person. Let's say back then. Would you would, – so I, I would not do it. Oh, I would not either. I would not uh, do it. Just just because think about how much time we've wasted. Now, if we had – I mean, for little, no return. Yeah. So, so to me, the reason I wouldn't do it is just simply because, ROI in there. I mean, I'm seeing what we're getting now. And if there was no way to change that and you just go back and say, yeah, you know, this is why time machines need to be invented. <laughs> and in January of 2018, it wouldn't have been a problem to not bid on it. We, no one, I mean, other people didn't either. It would have been very simple for us to go back. Well, it would have been very simple then to say, no, we got a lot of stuff on our plate. And we just don't have the bandwidth to, to pursue that and not do it um that to me is still a different question than if you had a time machine and you went back to july of 2018 because at that point there would have been 
irreparable harm done to the city by pulling the rug yeah. out from under the work that had already been done. And frankly, um, that 10 out of 11 council members, but for Lawana Mayfield, had told the mayor that, that they supported her pursuit of it. So the, to me, the January of 2018 and July of 2018 are two entirely different questions. If you could go back to January of 2018, absolutely you don't do this. Um, but there's no way to know that there's going to be I, I just, I just, else. The only thing I wish was I wish people had felt after, you know, almost two years after that, when you go into March and April in, in this time frame, what, what happened to, the, to our journey at that point. I wish more people had felt two years in pot committed enough that they would have been like, you know what, we're going to make something work. And there's, we're going to, maybe it's 5,000 or 7,000 or whatever. And I just feel like I just, as I look back on these last five months, I feel like people weren't pot committed, which is crazy considering how much effort we put into the center of that pot. Is that an attempt at an obscure poker reference? It's, I mean, anyone who's ever played poker, that is not obscure. That's, that should make a lot of sense. But I guess uh, I can't think of another analogy to replace it now. So you either play poker or know what I was talking about. Or you about. think Targ was talking about weed. Yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> but Targ is pot committed. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 102. Thanks as always for listening. Make sure you like, share, rate, whatever else you can do to help spread the word. And uh, and welcome, uh, welcome UK listeners. Yeah, all, the BBC all, boost. The BBC boost. All uh, you are now joining several million fans, um, dedicated fans here to this Plus podcast. Or minus a million. Everyone knows this is the highest rated podcast in North America. And local Charlotte politics. Mm-hmm. And we appreciate you joining. All right, folks.